0: Self turned on here. There we go. Okay, last week we were in. Uh, we just started Romans chapter seven, and uh, we uh, we were uh, we did the first uh, six verses in chapter seven, and today we're going to start on the next paragraph, which is Romans seven. Verses seven through twelve. Okay, so, uh, but uh, well, I'll explain it when we get there. But uh, we're not going to make it very far today uh, because of the groundwork we need to lay. But uh, uh, let's just to kind of uh, get our bearings. Let's read beginning beginning in chapter seven in verse one, and let's read down through verse twelve. To give us kind of a context. Uh, and then we'll go back and do our review and pick it up from there. So in, in chapter 7. Beginning in verse 1. He says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren... You also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But but now we have been released from the law having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin... Taking opportunity through the commandment deceived me, and through it killed me. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now look back at those first six verses that we just read, verses 1 through 6. And uh, let's kind of prime the pump here a little bit and see what, what do we remember that we talked about last week.
1: Remember, we talked about, in, in verse 3, Paul's argument. You
0: shocked answer. me. I usually have to wait five minutes for somebody to answer. and you.
1: <laughs> well, <I shocked laughs> What's wrong here? <laughs> well, I was shocked myself because I've been dwelling on this for the week. Great. It's uh, one, it. the, one of the husbands were in going to the other. And I I couldn't remember, and I didn't think to go on your website and to listen, to, listen to your explanation of why this argument was a little convoluted. Uh-huh. Uh, but I was thinking along the line that when I read this, I, I was thinking along the line of the context, context when the Pharisees were challenging Christ, where are you going to be married to in heaven? Mm-hmm. Jesus told them, you know, you don't understand, you're yeah. because you're not given marriage or given marriage right. given marriage in heaven. Um, anyway, again, I think I'm just saying, I'm still confused. <laughs> okay. What okay. are you confused? I'm still just kind of mulling over.
0: Okay. And what is it about verse three that's confusing?
1: Um, I I understand uh, that when the, you know, the when you die, you're released from all obligations. Right, right. And and I'm thinking along the line that uh, that the reason that we're from the obligations in this example is one reason that when we're we step into eternity, that we're going to be a bride of Christ. Or part of the bride of Christ. Okay. And I, I, that's kind of where I wound up, and I'm not sure if, uh, I, if I digress
0: way off of where you were going. Okay. Uh, well, uh, but what Paul's talking about here in the context is he's talking about our conversion. Okay. So he's not talking about in the future when we die, but he's talking about how we died with Christ on the cross. Christ died on the cross. We died with him. So what? When when we Uh, What he's saying there in verse three is that when we uh, when we receive Christ, when we become a Christian, then we become identified with Christ and his death and our obligation to the law at that point is broken. So what becomes confusing with Paul's illustration is that he talks about the woman, uh, the married woman and her husband. And, and in his illustration, the husband dies. But in his application, it's the woman who dies. OK, so that makes it a little confusing. But his point is, is that death, i.e. the death of Christ, with which I am identified when I'm converted, that the death of Christ is that which breaks that that bond or that obligation that I have to the law. Okay. Did that answer your question? Yes. Okay. OK, OK. Anybody else? Yes, Sarah.
2: Yeah. Oh, it's an allegory. Yes. And with an allegory, you have to decide what the important concept is. Exactly. So, in this allegory, it's not really marriage, it's death. Yes. Okay. And, yes. And you can't take an allegory and make it walk on all fours. Right. It's always going to fall apart. Yes. So, you have to just take this and a lot of people focus on. The marriage. the marriage, yeah. See, she put it better than I did. <laughs> <laughs> well
0: put. Well put. Not if you try okay. to apply it completely,
1: then that means that while we are not dead to sin, we can still be joined to Christ.
0: Right, exactly. And that is that is his point there in those verses, that the reason... That we have died to the law in this case. The reason that we have died to the law is so that we can be joined to Christ. And you cannot be joined to Christ and joined to the law at the same time. That's you know, it's just it just it's an impossibility. So in order for me to be joined to Christ, I have to have died to the law, and that's what happens in the body of Christ. In Christ's death on the cross, he puts to death, he puts me to death in a sense. As far as my, or in respect to my obligation or my responsibility or my condemnation, even under the law. Okay? This is good. Y'all are thinking good. What else? What else do you remember we talked about last week? We saw that there were three distinct arguments for
2: dealing with the believer's relationship with sin. Okay. And they all started out do you not know? Okay. To sin, to, you know, okay, that's
0: in the first half of chapter six. six okay.
2: Um, and then the second is from six fifteen, replaced to sin or a slave to righteousness. Okay. And then the third is from seven one. And it continues the argument from the sixth chapter, um, and it launches the relationship to the law. Um, so
0: okay, great, okay she is she's on top of it today. <laughs> she took good notes,
2: <laughs> and we're
0: glad about that, we're glad about that uh yes yeah, so so Paul has been. Beginning at the first of chapter six and then all the way up through verse six of chapter seven, he's talking about our relationship to sin and death and the law. OK, and they all get kind of intermixed together, which leads to the primary question he's going to ask in the verse we're going to look at today is the law sin, because we find that the law is, is always linked with this idea of sin. And in fact, when we get into chapter 8, he's going to talk about the law of sin and death. Okay? And uh, so we find this idea that the law is always somehow connected with this idea of sin and death. And so the natural question is, well, then, is the law sin? Or is there something evil about the law? And that's the question he's going to begin to address in verse 7. But before we get there, is there anything else you want to say about last week?
1: What's interesting is he, he talks about how apart from Christ, we're dead, but it's not the right kind of death. Because we need to be joined to Christ and dead to to uh, sin. Okay. So, and you actually we're probably going to cover that later because he talks in verse, what is that, verse 9, uh, where sin became a liar and I died. Yeah. He died there. Because yeah. Of sin. Yeah. Oh, that's a good
0: point. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that distinction, but that's a good point you brought that out. And if we ever got to verse nine today, we would talk about that. But I've given up hope of that. Okay. All right. Um, So he picks up then in verse seven, this idea of is is the law sin? If there's always this connection between the law and sin and if as we saw back in chapters 5 and 6, when the law came, it, it aroused sin. It stirred up sin in us. Sin was kind of like this dormant thing inside of us. Uh, and and then the law came and it aggravated that. As he says in chapter 7 and verse 5, it stirred up those evil passions or it aroused those evil passions within us. If that is the case, then then isn't it a logical assumption that we should make that there's something inherently evil about the law? And, of course, Paul speaking as a Jew is never going to allow that possibility. And we're going to see why it is not as we go through chapter, the rest of chapter 7. Now, uh, so and last week we mentioned this, that all of chapter 7 is really about the law. Now, the first six verses that we looked at uh, last week is still closely tied into the things he was saying in chapter 6, as Sarah pointed out. Okay, So, there were three main arguments that he makes from 6 through chapter 7, verse 6. But in the beginning of chapter 7, he's now introduced the subject of the law, and the law becomes his subject all the way through chapter 7. We need to keep that in mind. The real issue of chapter 7... The main topic of chapter 7 is the law. It's not human nature. Now, we're going to talk a lot about human nature in chapter 7, but that's not his subject. His subject is the law, and what is, how does the law operate? What is the law? How does the law work? Why was it given? What does it do inside of the person? Okay. And the reason he's going to do this is because he wants to get to chapter 8. And in chapter 8, he starts to talk about the new life of the believer. What it's like to be a Christian. What it's like to live under the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. okay, Or the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. So that's where he's headed. But in order to get there, He needs us to understand about the law. Now, the problem with chapters, one of the many problems with chapter seven, you're going to see there are many problems. But one of the many problems with uh, chapter seven is that you and I, as far as I know, everybody in this room here is a Gentile. And as far as I know, we're all living in the 21st century. Some of you may not be, but most of us are living in the 21st century. And so, we typically, when you start reading all this stuff about the law, and it becomes clear, as I said last week in chapter 7, he's talking about the Mosaic Law, the law that was given at Sinai. For those of us sitting in a Baptist church in the 21st century in Norman, Oklahoma, we go, what does this matter to me? You know, why do I need to study all this stuff? Why do I need to learn this stuff? Well, eventually, we're going to figure that out. We're going to figure out how this can have some relevance in our lives but we got a lot of work to do before we get there so i hope you'll be patient with me as we do it okay so so chapter seven is chiefly about the mosaic law uh and uh and there are kind of three main issues that paul deals with as we go through chapter seven and and uh those are one uh what is what is our relationship to the law? And when I say our relationship to the law, I don't necessarily mean our relationship as Christians. I mean, our relationship is people, as human beings. OK, what is what 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 is our how does the law work? Uh, how does the law function? What is our relationship to the law? And why does any of that matter? OK, so those are some of the things we're going to be wrestling with as we go through chapter seven and. And another question we're going to be asking ourselves is, how does the law work? You know, God obviously came down to Sinai. He made a really big deal of it. You'll remember, for those of you who were in the class back then, uh, we took back before we did our study in Genesis. I'm trying to remember, what did we do before Romans? Before we did our study in Genesis, we took about three months and looked at Israel's encounter with God at Horeb, at Mount Sinai. And uh, and you'll remember that God made a really big thing out of giving the law. Like okay, it is a big thing to God, and it was a big thing to Israel, as we'll see. Okay, and uh, so obviously this whole thing about the law and what the law does and how the law works and how it operates, this is a big thing to God. And if it's a big thing to God, then probably even though we're not bound to the law anymore, as He's already made clear earlier in the chapter it's still probably something we ought to understand if it was something that was that important to God. okay. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to try to figure all this out as we're going through chapter 7. But I want you to keep that in mind that the main subject of chapter 7 is the law. And human nature is only a secondary issue in chapter 7. Okay, It's only a secondary issue. So the main thing we have to figure out is these questions about the law, okay? Um something else I wanted to mention by way of introduction. Uh, and after I've done my introduction, then I'll do my subsequent introduction, okay? But when we're handling the Scriptures, when we're studying the Scriptures, ultimately what we want to get to is we want to get to a point where we ask ourselves what relevance does this have to me? What difference does this make in my life? How should this affect how I live at work on Monday morning? Okay? That's, That's ultimately where we're going, right? Is to understand the relevance of the Scripture to us today in our lives, right? And that's what we call application, right? It's applying the Scripture to my life. But what do you have to do before you can do application? You
1: have to identify a principle. Okay. Interpretation. In-
0: interpretation. You need to interpret. And there's a difference between interpretation and application. We've talked about this before. Interpretation is finding out what the particular passage we're looking at really says. Okay. Once I found out what it really says, then I can ask, what relevance does that have to me now? But first of all, I have to know what it says. And one of the essential things in interpretation in finding out what the Scripture says is is getting into the mind of the author and into the mind of the recipients. So, in other words, if I want to understand what does a particular passage in the Scripture say, the first thing I have to ask myself is, so, as if we're talking here, as we are today, about Romans, what did Paul mean? What did you know? So, it's not not as I read this passage, what you know, what kind of just pops in my mind, but rather, what did Paul really want to communicate? What was he really trying to say? And if I don't do that first, then I'm I'm going to misunderstand the scripture, and I'm going to misapply it. Now, we all have experience with this in our marriages, right? In our marriages, we have the experience of our spouse saying something to us. And instead of going, what did she really mean? I just go, how does that affect me? And I do the application before I do the interpretation. What happens when I do that? How's <laughs> it going like this?
2: <laughs> you get
0: in trouble, Right. You have a breakdown of communication because you haven't really heard what your spouse was trying to say. Okay, Well, we often do that with the Scriptures. We read a passage of Scripture and we just kind of react on it on a visceral level. And we go, oh, this affects me or this makes me think about this or whatever. Before we've asked ourselves, what is God really trying to say here? Well, what, is the, what was the author really trying to say under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? So interpretation, and you all know this, you know, this is nothing new to you. I'm just covering this aground again. Uh, interpretation is vital in every time to- every time we approach the scripture. Now, when I was first learning to do Bible study and 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 really get in the scriptures on my own and was being trained to do it, one of the things I was always trained to do and always trained to think about every time I opened the scripture was to ask what is God saying to me. Okay? That's that's because that's the point. That's why the Bible was written so that God could speak to me or he could speak to you. So every time I open the scriptures, I'm conditioned by my training and by conviction as well to ask myself, what is God trying to say to me? But before I can get to that point, I have to ask First, what is the correct interpretation of the passage? Once I determine that, then I look for the application. So always do interpretation first and then application. Okay, and that's my principle. But I always I'm always pressing for application. So, for example, every week as I prepare a Sunday school lesson, and I get ready to come in here and and interact with you all, one of the questions that's in the back of my mind always, and I try to get it written down in my outline before I walk in here, is what's the application? How does this relate to us? What difference does it make to us? However, there are times in our study of Scripture when we encounter passages that are so difficult to understand. That we have to spend a long time getting to the interpretation before it's safe for us to make application. So although every time, every Sunday I come in here, I'm ideally every Sunday when I come in here, I'm, I'm wanting to make sure that before we walk out the door at the end of the hour, people have got something they can sink their teeth into and go, okay, you know, this is something I can use today or this is something I can use this week. Or this is something I needed to hear. Okay. But because we only have a set amount of time, there are occasions when I have to say, OK, Lord, on this lesson, we're not going to get to the application because we got to do a lot of groundwork. And Romans 7 is one of those passages. So I said all of that in order to say today we're just going to do groundwork. And so you may not walk out of here at the end of the hour going, wow, this is really exciting to me because I can apply this in my life today. But hopefully when you go out of here today, you will have some tools in your hand that you can use as you seek to understand Romans 7. And the reason that I want to just take time over the next week or two to do the hard work of interpretation before we get to application is because I am convinced that most people read Romans 7 from a visceral level. They really don't know what Paul's talking about. So, they read through Romans 7 and particularly they get towards the end of Romans 7 verses 14 through 25 and and they see They see what Paul's saying there about, you know, well, I don't you know, I don't understand what's going on here because I want to do one thing and then I end up doing another. And they read that kind of on an emotional level. And they've missed Paul's point. Okay. now, as you're going to see in the work we do this morning, there are a wide variety of opinions about Romans seven held by a lot of really good people, okay? And I'm going to take a position. And I'm going to tell you that I think that's the right way to view Romans 7. But when we walk out of Romans 7 into Romans 8, you may may have an opinion different than I have. I may not convince you all that my view is right, okay? That's okay. I don't have a problem with that. But what I do want to make sure is that whatever you do, however you end up after we're done with Romans 7, that you're at least dealing honestly with the passage. And you're at least dealing honestly with the questions and the problems that this passage presents to us. You'll, You'll understand more about what I'm talking about as we go on. And whatever you do, whatever your view of Romans 7, after we're done with Romans 7, all I ask, is that you not have a view of Romans 7 that eviscerates Romans 6. And that's what I think many people do. I think many people have a view of Romans 7 that basically just crosses Romans 6 out of their Bible. What am I talking about? I'm talking about that thing that we've seen over and over again as we've been going through Romans 6 that we're dead to sin. That sin no longer has power over us and we can choose to live and present our bodies as, as uh, instruments of righteousness. That's what Paul says. I'm convinced of one thing. I'm convinced of none else. I'm convinced from Romans 6, which is a whole lot easier to understand than Romans 7. I'm convinced from Romans 6 that I have been freed from my bondage to sin. So let's make sure that whatever your view is of Romans 7, by the time we get through it, that you don't lose Romans 6. Because Romans 6 is good news, folks. It is great news. It is great news. And we're going to get to seeing greater news in Romans 8. But to go from the good news in 6 to the good news in 8, we've got to go through 7 and understand what's happened. Okay? So that's what we're going to do. Now, with all of that, by way of introduction... Uh, it was an introduction to an introduction to an introduction. And having done all of that, I want us now to reread the verses that uh, this next paragraph that Paul's going to deal with. And as we read it, I want you to ask yourself, what are the things in these verses I don't understand? What are the things in these verses that raise a question in my mind? Because I have a list here in my notes. I have a list here of about six or eight big questions that come up in this paragraph. Okay, And in the actually, a couple of them are from the subsequent paragraph. But, but, so let's just read it. And then I want us to ask ourselves, what are the questions? What are the problems we need to resolve? Okay. So in verse 7, then he says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Okay? So, as we read that, you go, oh, I understand that perfectly, right? What are the questions that pop into your mind as you read that passage?
1: I just look at that and I, uh, I can't even understand how Paul can equate or even say the law is then. I probably didn't sleep in the
2: previous
0: <laughs> Okay, well, that's a good question. And... Um, and since we've already talked about that some, let's go back and look at the verses before that. Notice where he says in verse 5, For while, the, while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. So, of course, Paul doesn't believe that the, that, that the law is sin, but but he's being accused by his opponents because he says, well... And he said this in chapter five as well. The law came in and what it did is it stirred up sin and it brought death. Okay, so so he's being accused with somehow equating the law with sin. Okay, but of course, he's going to refute it because obviously it doesn't make sense. And we'll see why. But that's a good question. What else? I'm not going to answer all the questions incidentally as you bring them up. I just want us to get thinking about what are the questions
1: because the, the law is holy and the command is holy, and I'm sinning because.
0: Okay. Okay. Good question. Why am I sinning? Okay. Okay.
1: I think uh, what bothered me is the law producing me Okay. I mean, why would the law produce that? Okay. Good. The is the reason the law that's similar to what the circumstances are attention. Okay,
0: but we don't want to answer that. I don't want to answer the questions. I just want to ask them. I just want I want to get a I want to get us thinking. Okay.
1: I learned in verse seven at the end, he says, "I would not have known about it except the law." And I'm thinking, well, it seems like I know about those things without the law, but okay, the law reveals it. Okay, some way.
0: Okay okay, what else if
2: the was meant
0: for life, does it death? okay good you know uh, you know because Paul's Paul's really big on this thing the law came in and we all die and so you go and 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 it's very clear back in chapter five that God sent the law for that purpose so you go so how how was the law supposed to produce life in the first place you know what, what, what is that all about what else well, save
1: lives? What did
0: God say about the law when it? Okay. Okay. All
1: right. What else? Well, i want to say here, too. You're, you're asking me questions, assuming that we all ask questions. Most of the time, I don't ask questions like that. It says it, I say, okay. <laughs> so, okay. Not to say that it's bad, Yeah. I typically don't have a question. Yeah.
0: Like and this is one of the crucial principles of interpretation. One of the first things you do when you approach a, a passage, if you really want to understand it, is you ask every possible question you can to the passage. What do you mean by this? What do you mean by this? What do you mean by this? That's a that's a critical principle in really getting to explore a passage. Is stop and ask yourself what are the questions that this passage presents to me? What else? Any others you see? I see others here you haven't brought up yet.
1: Knowing well, that, that Paul is raised.
0: Okay, what does that mean? What does it mean when Paul says, I was alive apart from the law? I mean, Paul was like you and I. He was born a sinner. So, what does he mean when he says, I was once alive apart from the law? What else?
2: Well, he almost attributes a personality Okay. And um, why, why would seizing an opportunity through the commandment um, provide the opportunity for deception and death? Okay. You know,
0: it's using, I mean, God gave the commandment and God gives life. Yeah. So the commandment was left what was meant for life. Yeah. That's what he said. So, sort, sort of. of. <laughs> um, and that's one of the problems of this passage is because in verse after verse in this passage and in line after line of this passage, he seems to contradict things that are said elsewhere in scripture, you know, like this idea of what does it mean that Paul was alive because we know Paul was born a sinner, so he was born dead, like the rest of us, you know so you know and and then the other question is. Okay, he was born alive and the law came in and then he died. Well, Paul wasn't dead when he wrote this. Obviously, he was still alive. Right. But somehow he died. Okay, And so we can go on. Uh, Here's a question for you. As he's going down through here and he starts talking about the law, he begins to talk about the 10th commandment. Right. The law, the law prohibiting covetousness. Thou shalt not covet. And I ask myself, why does Paul pick that one? I told you, we don't want answers now. We just want questions.
1: <laughs> we'll get to <them. laughs> but, but
0: But it is a question because to me, to me, I kind of think of the Tenth Commandment as kind of a, you know, kind of an add on at the end. It's not really one of the biggies. You know, the biggies are no other gods before me. Don't make graven images. You know, keep the Sabbath. You know, don't murder. Don't commit adultery. And then kind of at the end, you know, well, by the way, I don't want you to covet either. So I, I, I don't usually think of, of the 10th commandment as a biggie. And so I ask myself, why does Paul pick the 10th commandment? Thou shalt not covet as his kind of paradigm of the law. OK, so so that's a question that comes to my mind. And uh, let's see. Some of these I'm looking at my list here. Some of these we've already mentioned. Uh, Okay. Okay. Okay.
2: Okay.
0: Good. Good question. Okay. Uh, And then beyond this beyond this paragraph, as we get into the next paragraph in chapter in verse 14, he switches he switches from past tense into present tense. Okay. And so I asked myself, because this has some bearing on the paragraph we're looking at. Why does, why does Paul in the next paragraph switch to the present tense? OK. And uh, and then at one point, Paul says, what I'm doing, I don't understand. Remember that? It's not in the verses we have just read, but the ones we're going to work on later. OK, he says what I'm doing, I don't understand. And then a few verses later, he explains it all. So what does he mean he doesn't understand it if, if within a few verses he gives us a complete detailed explanation of what just what, what just happened? OK, these are all questions that come to mind. But here's one of the biggies this and this is one you totally miss uh, because you just assume something when you read this passage. But as commentators think carefully about this passage, this becomes the biggest question. Oh, before I get to that one, sorry about that.
1: The
0: other question, and the reason I didn't mention this is because we've already dealt with this last week. Question. What?
2: What?
0: <laughs> the, the, another question is, what is the law? But we talked about that last week. Okay, what is the law he's referring to? And you remember that as we we're getting started in Romans, I said to you that typically, this not always the case, but typically. When Paul uses the definite article before the word law, when he uses the word the before the word law, so he's saying the law. What's he referring to? Mosaic. The Mosaic law, the law of Mount Sinai, okay, Ten Commandments, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, okay. So uh, oftentimes, when he doesn't have the definite article before it, oftentimes he's speaking more generally of just God's law or some other law, okay. But when he puts the definite article in front of it, which he does in most cases in this passage, it's very clear he's talking about the Mosaic Law. So that's important that we realize that. Okay? I'll explain that to you eventually. Okay. So, but the really big question is who is I? Now, you didn't notice that one, did you? Because you read it and you went... Oh, well, that's just Paul. That's just Paul talking about himself. Okay. Well, it's not all that clear, I hate to tell you. <laughs> okay.
1: I think Paul's using himself as an example. It's good. Uh he's he's in this whole pattern, he's switching back from the the fleshly perspective and the spiritual perspective and God's perspective, and it's hard to tell which one is okay. which.
0: Okay. Okay. Now the uh, probably the majority interpretation throughout the history of the church in Romans seven, uh, the majority, but not necessarily not not at all the dominant majority, but the majority interpretation is that is that the I refers to Paul. Okay, and that Paul simply referring to himself and experiences that he has encountered or is encountering. Okay, but there are other very well accepted, well respected scholars, evangelical scholars, uh, from the earliest days of the church, that have held that the I here does not so much refer to Paul, but may refer to someone else. And that Paul is just simply using the I here, or in Greek ego, uh, using the I here as uh, as kind of paradigmatic, as a paradigm of something else or as a literary tool or rhetorical tool that he's using. OK, so there are four primary ways of viewing the I in Romans seven. And. And each one of them has compelling arguments behind them. Okay. As I read the explanations for these various four ways of viewing the eye in Romans 7. I go, oh, I like that. That makes sense, you know. And then I get the next one I go, well, you know, that makes sense. I like that, you know. And, then, I, and then, then this guy argues with this guy and I go, Well, that's a pretty good point. That probably doesn't work, you know. Because there are problems, or I should say challenges, with each view. Okay. So, so, in your efforts to understand Romans chapter 7, you're going to have to wrestle with these questions. And you're going to have to decide for yourself, as each one of us does, who do I think Paul's talking about here when he says, I, in Romans chapter 7. Okay, Now, as I said, Probably the majority opinion has been that Paul is simply speaking autobiographically. That would be the first category. Well, I should mention this, too, that almost everyone, all the, I think all the scholars I read, who hold to one of these four also see elements of one or more of the rest of the other four views there as well. So, for example, someone who sees the autobiographical uh, view of the eye in Romans chapter 7 may also see elements of one of the other views. That's because they just, they're just such good reasons for each one of these views, okay? So, as I explain it to you, what's going to become clear is that my position is kind of two, okay, out of the four, it's kind of a blend of the two, okay? And and as we go through Romans seven, I'll explain that to you. But the first one is autobiographical, and and uh, and basically the uh, the autobiographical just views this as Paul just talking about his own experience, okay? And so the autobiographical interpretation, or as one commentator calls it, direction that people think in these passages, in this passage. Uh, uh, the autobiographical view views verses 7 through 12 as uh, as most likely Paul's pre-conversion experience, before Paul was saved. Okay? But then the question comes up, well, when before Paul was saved? And some who hold the autobiographical position in verses seven through twelve, view it as a reference to Paul before his bar mitzvah. Okay, the bar mitzvah is a Jewish boy's—you uh, know—it's kind of like a confirmation at the age of thirteen. Okay, at the age of thirteen, he is bar mitzvah. He becomes a son of the law. Okay, and uh, so some commentators view this, and this is this is Paul talking about before he became a son of the law. So before he became a son of the law, he was alive, and then the law came, and I died. Okay, that's the way some view it. Okay, some others say, well, no, 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 that doesn't work because because Jewish boys even before they were 13 still felt a very strong connection with the law before that actual formal commitment to the law at the bar mitzvah. So they're very aware of the law. They were circumcised the eighth day, all that sort of thing. Paul talks about. Okay, so so. That doesn't work. This is probably Paul describing his experience just before he was saved, his pre-conversion experience, how he came to Christ. Okay, and, uh, uh, and the problem with that view is that there's really no evidence in Scripture that Paul went through this kind of a traumatic experience before he got saved. Okay? He's just sailing along there doing all he's doing and he's persecuting Christians and all this sort of thing. And then he has this encounter on the Damascus Road and boom, you know, he gets saved. Right. OK. So there's really that's not to say this didn't happen in Paul's life. What he describes here in Romans seven. But we don't have any evidence of it. OK. It just doesn't seem like that was his path to conversion to many. OK. So. So there are some problems or I would say challenges to when I say problems, you might think, well, you know, solid objections to this view. And I wouldn't say they're necessarily, you know, locked down tight. This proves the review wrong. I'm just saying there are problems you've got to deal with There are challenges you've got to confront if you're going to hold this view. OK, you got it. To...
1: I thought that was the evidence. There was no other evidence. I thought that was the evidence of that. You lost me. <laughs> well, it, it appears that Paul was going along and had this boom, conversion experience. So you think, well, what happened? And then you read this and say, oh, here's what happened. We know what
0: happened. We know what happened because he said he was on the Damascus Road and Jesus said to him, you know, what are you doing? Kicking against the goads. He said, you know, I am the Christ. I'm the one you're persecuting. And he went, oh, well, in that case. So there's no evidence that he struggled with the law.
1: Right. What I'm saying is this. It could be.
0: Yeah, it could be. okay. yes, yes, it definitely could be. Yeah. And uh, and uh, we'll get on that as we go forward. But that's a good point. Yes, very, very definitely could be. OK. Those who hold to the autobiographical view, then when you get to verse 14, Paul switches to the present tense and they say verses 14 through 25 is Paul's uh, discussing his experience either as a very new convert or as as his ongoing Christian struggle. Okay? And uh, for those of you who are familiar with Romans 7, 14 through 25, you know it's that whole thing about Oh, I wanted to do what was right, but I don't do what's right. And I find in this law in me, this thing working in me, and I sin when I don't want to sin. And I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but then I don't do what I, you know, it's that whole conflict thing. OK, and the autobiographical view, most of all the autobiographical view view that as Paul talking about the experience of a believer, of himself as a believer, either in his early conversion days or. Uh, After his conversion or as just an ongoing experience in his Christian life. As we'll see as we go through that passage, it's very difficult to find in any other place in Paul's writing. Anything similar to that experience. Paul gives no hint in any of the rest of his writings that he encountered any kind of conflict like this. Okay, so these are some problems or challenges that you face if you hold the autobiographical position. Uh, the second way of viewing the I in Romans chapter seven is that it's a reference to Adam. That as Paul is speaking, he's speaking I here. He's really speaking. Uh, uh, he's, he's using himself kind of metaphorically, uh, representing Adam. And as you read down through, particularly these first uh, few verses of chapters of this section of chapter uh, section of chapter seven. As you read through them, you can see a lot of parallels with Adam. You know, I was once alive apart from the law. And then the law came and I died, you know. And he talks about sin taking opportunity through the law, deceived me and through it killed me. We can see a lot of parallels with Adam, right? Here's Adam and, and then the law. But in this case, of course, it's not the Mosaic law. It'd be the commandment not to eat of the tree. And so God gives the command. And then the serpent comes in, and he deceives them, and tricks them into sinning, whatever. Okay. So there are some striking parallels to Adam, and in one sense we could say Adam is the only human who's ever lived of whom it could be said, "I was once alive apart from the law." Okay. So there are some strong arguments for viewing the eye here as a a reference to Adam and, and, and Adam and Eve. Okay. But there are some problems with that view as well. Some challenges. And one is the fact that it's pretty clear that Paul, when he's referring to the law here, is referring to the Mosaic law. Which, of course, precludes Adam. Okay? Couldn't be Adam. Well, now the Jews in Paul's day actually viewed the law as, you know, coextensive throughout eternity. And so they viewed Adam as being under the Mosaic law. But you can't really support that biblically. Uh, So, so... Yes, Adam had a law, but he, it wasn't the law that Paul was talking about here. Uh, similarly, it's very, it seems pretty clear that when Paul's talking here about how the law, like he said in verse 5, aroused the sinful passions within me, well, that couldn't be Adam. Adam didn't have any sinful passions. He was innocent. Okay. So, even though there are some striking parallels to Adam in the passage, there are also some pretty striking discongruities that would make it seem like, well, this can't be Adam, OK, uh, at least in my opinion. OK, I should be writing these down for you. I'm sorry, I meant to write these down. OK, the first one is autobiographical. Do I have too many letters in there to get it right? I got it right. OK, uh, and, the, and the second one is the Adamic version, OK? The third one is what, we, what is sometimes called the salvation historical uh, view or is sometimes called the Israeli view, which is a hint. The I refers to what? Israel. Okay. So it's possible that as Paul is using the word I here, he is he is referring to himself in a sense autobiographically, but in uh, in complete identification or union with the whole nation of Israel. Okay, Now, this is hard for us to uh, think in these terms because we, we just don't think in these terms. We don't. For for one thing, most of us have really not much of a clue what race we come from. You know, I know I'm a little bit English and a little bit German. and But that's really not a big deal to me. OK, but to the Jew, being a Jew was a big deal. OK, many, many peoples of the world, their their race, their, you know, their genetic heritage is just really a big thing to them. It's their identity. OK, well, this is particularly true of the Jews. So the Jews... The Jews view themselves not just as individuals, but as, but as really part of a whole. And that what happens to the whole happens to them. Okay? So, for example, in the Passover, the Jew, as he's celebrating the Passover, one of the things he does is he confesses that he was in Egypt in slavery and then delivered through the Passover even though he's celebrating the Passover in the 21st century. So there's some sense in which he he feels like he was there. In Egypt, in slavery. It's this identity. We see another example of it in the book of Hebrews. <coughs> Excuse me. In the book of Hebrews, remember when Paul is talking about about the Levites, the tribe of Levi offering tithes, etc and talking about Melchizedek there in Romans or in Hebrews chapter seven. And he says that that in some sense he says Levi offered tithes through Abraham to Melchizedek. Because he was in he was in Abraham's loins. Yes, sir. We don't know who Paul wrote Well yeah, you're right, yes, yeah. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. Yes, right. Yeah, and actually I agree with you. I don't think Paul did write Hebrews. Uh, But whoever wrote Hebrews, whoever wrote Hebrews, yes, whoever wrote Hebrews, (coughs) excuse me, makes the point that that the the uh, Levites paid ties through Abraham. Okay, so there's this kind of identity with the with the people of Israel that every Jew has. So in one sense, this view views Paul using the word I here as an identification with Israel and with Israel's experience at Sinai. Okay, So, so as he talks about, I was once alive apart from the law and then the law came. Clearly, he's talking about the Mosaic Law. Of course, we've already established that. He's talking about the Mosaic Law. And, and this is the time when the Mosaic Law came. It came at Sinai. And something happened at Sinai. And, and we we studied that clear back in earlier in Romans. We we talked about how between Adam and Moses, sin was in the world, death was in the world, but 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 sin was not imputed where there is no law. Remember all that stuff we studied earlier in Romans. Okay, well this all, if we view Romans chapter seven, the I as referring to uh, to uh, <coughs> excuse me to Paul identifying with Israel. Then some of these things that he says in Romans seven begin to kind of make sense. Okay, yeah, I understand. You know, we, we were in this time between Moses and between Moses and or excuse me, between Adam and Moses, and all those years in slavery and in Egypt and, and in the the early year, the early days in the months in the wilderness. There, they were still there was no law. Okay, but then the law came. And after the law came, then came the condemnation of the law and all that sort of thing. And then we discovered what coveting was and we discovered about things. Okay, this is the experience of Israel in the wilderness. And, and then as you go on through Romans chapter 7, if that's how he's using the I and the me in Romans chapter 7, then when you get to the present tense in verses 14 through 25, that's going on to talk about Israel's present condition in relationship to the law okay <coughs> excuse me so that I got something in my throat here uh, uh, so that is uh that is the third view uh, and uh then the fourth view is uh big word here uh is the existential view okay. And uh the existential view is just kind of it that the I stands for everyone in general and no one in particular.
1: Okay. Uh
0: that that really it's just representative of everybody. Okay. He doesn't have any Paul doesn't have any particular person in mind. He's just speaking of us all, all of humanity.
1: Okay.
2: Say it again. It's also less when you're for okay. Okay. I, I can't have my cake and
0: eat it. Too. Okay, okay. It's much
2: than you can't yeah.
0: And eat yeah, it. good point. Yeah. Uh the problem with this view is that everybody's not under the law. You're a Gentile. You weren't born under the law. The law never came to you. Okay? So There are challenges with each one of these views. But, and as we go through Romans, just to kind of state my position up front, as we go through Romans 7, the view that that I see holds the strongest arguments with the least challenges is the salvation historical view. Okay? So that Paul is speaking primarily from the salvation historical perspective. This is Israel's experience. And this is my experience as a Jew. Because I am part of Israel. Okay. But as I pointed out. Almost every commentator I read. Who preferred one of these views. Also kind of liked elements of one, one or more of the other views. Okay. So I'm going to hedge my bets too. Okay. Okay. Uh, I think this is what Paul means, but I think he is also, there's definitely clearly an element of the autobiographical to it. But we have to be careful with the autobiographical view because there are very clearly things, if you just take the autobiographical view exclusively by itself, there are very clearly things that either do not seem to apply to Paul or completely gut Romans six. And I don't want to gut Romans six. I kind of like Romans six. OK, I don't want to gut that. So so this this argument here seems to make the most sense to me. Now, what you're going to notice and <laughs> what you notice now is that we're here at the end of the lesson and we haven't even looked at verse seven yet, have we? OK, <clears throat> That's what I expected to happen. Okay, so we've just spent a lot of time just trying to get our handle around. What are the questions we're going to confront? And in interpreting Romans seven, there are three main things that you have to think about to interpret Romans seven accurately. And the first one we talked about last week is what is the law? You've got to know what Paul's talking about because he keeps talking about the law all the way through Romans 7. And so you've got to know what is the law. And once you figure out what the law is, that's got to be, that's gotta be a, the constraining influence on your interpretation of Romans 7. Don't go interpreting Romans 7 with just kind of any willy-nilly idea of what the law is. The law in Romans 7 is the Mosaic law. Okay. Keep that in mind. Every time you see the word, almost without exclusion, we'll see a couple of maybes towards the end. But pretty much without exception, the law he's referring to in Romans seven is Mosaic law. The second and critical thing in interpreting Romans seven is the issue we've been wrestling with here just now: is who is the I? Who is the ego? That's the Greek word there. Who is the ego? Who is the I? Okay, that's the second big issue. So that's why I wanted to figure that out. Who is the I? And I'm going to approach Romans seven from this perspective. And as we go through the verses, you can wrestle with these four and kind of think them through and think, where are you? Uh, And if you don't end up here, I'm okay with that. Okay, but I just want you to know that I think I think this is the best way to look at it. Okay, and I think that most of the evidence fits best here. So. The fourth, uh, the third question is, and we won't get to this till next week. The third question is, uh, what is the experience? Uh, What is the experience in verse nine? Okay, somebody brought that up in the questions that we asked at the beginning. Okay, these, these are key. To understanding Romans 7. What is the law? Who is the I? What's he talking about in verse 9? If you can get a handle on those things and and make up your mind about what you think is the answer to those three questions, then as you move forward in Romans 7, that will become the grid that will help you interpret the rest of Romans 7. Because I want to make sure that I want to make sure at least a couple things as we work our way through Romans 7. One is I want to make sure it prepares us for Romans 8, because that's where he's going. He's going for this really cool stuff about what it means to live in Christ. But to understand how really cool it is, we need to understand what it's like to live under the law and what's the difference. So, that's one of the things I want to do as we're going through Romans 7, is make sure that it gets us ready for Romans 8. The other thing I want to make sure is it doesn't just wipe out from underneath us the rug of Romans 6. And I said this when we started Romans 6, you've got to get Romans 6 down, folks. You've got to to get down, you've got to understand what it means, and you've got to believe it. And don't let go of it. No matter what anybody tells you about Romans chapter 7, don't let go of Romans chapter 6. Okay? Hang on to that. Because that's great stuff. I'm no longer a slave of sin. I'm no longer bound to the law. I'm no longer dead to sin. And although, yes, as a Christian, I can choose to sin. Paul says that over and over again in Romans 6. Even though I can choose to sin as a believer, I don't have to. I don't have to. I'm free. So whatever you do with Romans seven, don't lose that. Okay? All right? So all of today has just been groundwork, getting the tools that we need so that we can go forward. So next week we'll pick it up with verse seven of chapter seven, and maybe we'll get through those six verses. I don't know, but we'll see. We'll try to get through all six verses next week. Okay?